Hello, I'm John Meacham, co-chair of the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, and I'd like to welcome you to Unity Talks. This is a series of conversations hosted by the project's co-chairs with experts from the media, the academy, and government on the challenges facing American democracy. Here at the Vanderbilt Project on Unity and American Democracy, we're seeking to restore and reinvigorate the national discourse, supplanting reflexive partisanship with reflective citizenship, anchored on facts and evidence. As you'll see in these episodes, a unity of opinion in an open democratic society is impossible. A unity of purpose, however, is achievable and necessary. Hopefully, these conversations, hosted by me and by former Tennessee Governor Bill Haslam and Vanderbilt's Summer Ali, will reinvigorate our shared commitment to American democracy and remind us of our obligations as active participants in this unfolding American experiment. Hello, I'm Bill Haslam, uh, part of the Vanderbilt Project for Unity and Democracy, and I'm really pleased to have uh, a guest with us today, Will Hurd, former U.S. Congressman, former CIA officer, uh, tech expert. Uh, there's a lot of parts of his resume that I think are interesting. So we could be here a while, but I, we, we won't take all the time to talk sure. about. But, Will, thanks, and welcome to Tennessee. Hey, it's, it's always a pleasure, and I appreciate the invite. Good. We're glad to have you here. As we always say, there wouldn't be a Texas without Tennessee. So <laughs> well, welcome right. back right. home. That's right. All right. Let me start with this. Your book, American Reboot, um, it is a book heavy on policy mm-hmm. in a world where policy is not really in favor. Uh, Politics and rhetoric um, are, are the kind of the, the currency of the day, if you will. Why did you write a book about policy? Well, look, I, I would agree with you, right? Most people are chasing clicks. They're chasing eyeballs on, on television. But one of the things that I, the reason I ran for Congress was because I was frustrated with, with the system. And the reason I kept getting elected in Congress is because I told the folks that represented me, here's what I'm gonna do, and then grade me on whether or not I did it. And so I was able to win in, in one of the toughest districts yeah. um, you know, in the country because we produce things. And, and the reason that you're seeing a lack of trust in many of our institutions is because people don't think those institutions are doing anything for them. Yeah. Uh, why are businesses the last institutions that have any kind of trust from the population? Because guess what? They have to deliver a good or service at a specific time. Um, if, if we get back to this notion of delivering on for the people that we represent, we're going to see those trust numbers improve, and it was it was what the secret of my success was. So, why not write about so, it? So, so we're going to cir- I'm going to circle back around to that. So that's really good. Mm. A little bit about you personally. I mean, like I said, fascinating background. Black father, mm-hmm. white mother. You ran in a largely Hispanic district, yeah, so sure. lots to talk about there. Um, you don't fit the profile of a Republican. Uh, well, let me start there. We're, we're gonna, we'll come back and talk about some of the faults of the party, but sure. thinking like, well, why, why are you a Republican? Well, m- my dad, uh, who was born in East Texas, and he's, he's 89 years old now, wow. 
he always says he's been a Republican since Lincoln freed us, right? <laughs> and, and it goes back to that. Um, but, but my parents, my dad was, was a salesman and he sold yeah. notions. And when I was in middle school, him and my mom decided to open up their own business. Right? And so I saw them you know, bootstrap a beauty supply business and yep. then create a beauty school. And so those principles that kind of were at the time the foundation of the Republican Party, um, I saw that yeah. firsthand. Then I go to Texas A&M University, right? Conservative uh, university. Yeah. Um, I was involved in student politics. You stand up for the whole football game? Uh, we do. Okay. We do. We do. Um, and and look, I got to know then George W. Bush, the governor. Ah, yeah. Uh, Rick Perry was the sure. agriculture commissioner yeah. before he became governor. Aggie and himself. Aggie, Aggie himself. Yeah. And then and then also I you know got to know uh, Bob Gates. Right. Sure. He was interim head of the Bush School at the time. Yeah went on to be Secretary of Defense. He had already been the CIA director. Right. And, then, and then also George H.W. Bush right. was heavily involved at Texas A&M's campus. Sure. So, so I had an exposure to conservative leaders um, early in my, in my formidable years. And then spending time, you know, a decade as an undercover officer in the CIA where I was recruiting spies and stealing secrets, my best job on the planet. Yeah. Um, you yeah, know, we're you, gonna hear yeah, about that too, yeah, by the way. You, you, that was, so, so the importance of America's role in the rest of the world, uh, the importance of foreign policy, uh, having an aggressive foreign policy, yeah. all of those things were what has influenced me. Now, I wasn't reciting the Constitution when I was four years old or things yeah. like that, but that is what, what you know, um, the, the influence I had. And, and then ultimately, I think historically, the Republican Party has been a simple form, formula. Freedom leads to opportunity, Opportunity leads to growth, growth leads to progress, right? Now we've gotten away from some of those things, right. but that fundamental formula, I, I, I truly believe and experience that yeah. at every phase of my life. Yeah, I would say the same. I mean, the, the market-based economy, the idea that America has a leading role in the world, mm -hmm. those are the fundamental things. But, uh, you know, if we're going to talk about change, I always say you should start with yourself. And mm -hmm. so as two Republicans, yeah. we should talk about how do we get here to where you said some of the things that are the bedrock principles of the party aren't necessarily what we practice now. Uh, and definitely, we, we've kind of lost the policy orientation, if mm -hmm. you will. How did we get here? Yeah, I think there's a number of factors, right, that have led us to, to this point. But, but if I were to highlight just one, like if I had a magic wand and I can change it, it's the primary process. Ultimately, 3% of a population right. is deciding a lot of seats. And let's take the, the 2020 election. Only 34 House seats were, right. were competitive. And I say competitive, that means split party, where people voted for one party of president and the right. other party of Congress. Right. 34. Right. Out of? Out of 435. Right. If you go back to 2000, that number was north of 70. Right. If you go back to 1980, that number was north of 150, right? right? And so, so decisions were being made in the past in the general election in November, not during the primary. And then if you also go back to our last non-presidential election, again, I'm talking about the House, the average number of voters that decided the winner of a, of a primary was 54,000 people. Yeah. So 27,001 people were deciding 
92% of the House seats. And this logic applies to every other seat below the House. Now, um, statewide races, it's a, little bit, it's a little bit different, but you're seeing this kind of the same trends, not enough people voting in primaries. And so what happens is when people get elected, they only talk to those 3% of voters that got, a, that got them elected within, right. within the primary. Let's look across the country. People are winning with only 30% of the vote. That is not reflective of, of a majority of, of society. And so those are some of the structural changes. And then I would argue that because people running for office stop talking to all those other right. people, they stopped coming out to vote. Yeah, and I would add to that, then you add the whole Twitterverse that we live in the middle of now, and if they look, the active people are the same small <laughs> percentage of folks, primarily on the far right and the far left. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that politicians learn, you learn to read the room, right? You go sure. in and you're speaking to a, you know, an optimist club or a rotary club in San Antonio versus I'm in a small town and I'm talking about agriculture issues. You, right. In a good way, you learn to read the room, but. Right. Unfortunately, the result is you, you read the room and you're only hearing these voices that are on the very edges. Sure, and then, and then we try to nationalize everything. Right. Um, I, I, because I was always in a competitive seat, um, national reporters would always want to come and, and be on the campaign trail, me, trail with me right. during my, my elections. And I used to do this thing called DC to DQ. Right. Um, I would go great. to all the Dairy Queens in the district. It was great. Look, all these counties, they had one Dairy Queen. Everybody knew where it was. You know, you didn't have to put that ice cream when you, you were done. It's like, it's yeah. great. It's great. Called it work. And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the called it work, right. Um, and the, the, the reporters, I'd say, listen, you get the last 10 minutes. Yeah. And every national reporter would, in essence, berate the crowd. Because they're like, you didn't ask about this topic. You didn't ask yeah. about this. And those national reporters were talking about whatever right, right. You know, the D.C. Totally. crowd was talking about, whatever was being talked about on Twitter. And that was not reflective of what real people cared about. And so this, this attempt to nationalize everything. No, people care about the crummy roads in their neighborhood. Yep. They want to make sure the kid, their school their kids are going to has you know, computer science education yep. so they're ready for the next thing. Right? And, and so, so we need to move away from trying to nationalize everything. Uh, I mean, I've always said the, the best way to learn what people care about is run for office, stand on 20,000 front doors, that you, porches <laughs> exactly. that you knocked on the door, and you hear, here's what people really care right. about. So you're right. Yeah, Governor, but, but here's what I found, right? right. Whether I was in, 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 in deep blue El Paso, right. or the ruby red parts of San Antonio, people cared about the same thing. Yeah. They cared about putting food on their table, a roof over their head, and taking care of the people right. that, that, that they love. Yeah. And when you talk about those issues, you're going to see you're going yeah. to see, you'd see a change in behavior, but we don't talk about those unfortunately. Right. So I, I want to let's let's take in I think the other reason I think that policy doesn't get talked about is two things. One, both sides make hay off of a problem that's not solved, mm -hmm. and then number two, it's hard to solve problems. Yeah. Right. So yeah. the example I always use is immigration, and no. it's a great one for you because you you live. You have a district that reflects a lot of the real issues. So let's let's take a, re a hard issue like that. I always say with immigration, mm -hmm. you know, Republicans can say the Democrats just want to let everybody over the border. Democrats are saying Republicans want to keep kids in cages. Solving it is 
really hard, but I actually think is doable. So let's take a, a policy issue like that. Mm -hmm. you, you got to, you get to um, take a leadership role. All of a sudden, mm -hmm. um, you went to being Speaker of the House. And they said, hey, look, chart a course here. Mm -hmm. Show us a course on solving the immigration issue. Sure. Um, well, thanks for getting my blood pressure up. Yeah. <laughs> um, because this, this was an important issue sure. for me. And it was one of those things where I took a number of swings at and, yep. and was unsuccessful. So, so immigration is one of those issues that you have to address what's happening at the time. So right now, today, the issue, the, 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 the crisis at the border is real. Right. The number of, the amount of illegal immigration that's, that's, that's coming into our country is, is at the highest it's ever been. That, that's not my opinion. That's what the current Secretary of Homeland Security for President Biden has said. And it's gotten so bad that even the mayors of New York City and Washington, D.C. are saying, hey, we got to do something at the border because now it's starting to impact us. So the first step, you have to, we have to stop treating everybody that's coming into the country illegally as an asylum seeker. Right. Asylum is a very specific thing, and, and we're, we're misinterpreting it. And yes, there are some people that have asylum, but when you look over the last 30 years, only about somewhere between 12 to 20% of people that apply for asylum actually get granted asylum. It's a very small number. So, so asylum means you are being persecuted. So, so first off, you're part of a protected class, and two, you're being persecuted right. by, uh, because you're part of that protected class. So, so we have to stop treating everybody as asylum seekers. That's, that's point one. Point two, if you, if you address that a pool factor, right, um, then, then you have to start worrying about putting the right kind of technology along the border. Um, a lot of us saw those pictures of the people that were in that truck and they right. died of heat exhaustion. Right. Right. It's terrible. Um, I've, I've spoken to some of the, the firemen and police officers that saw that and they're like, we sh that's something nobody should ever see. Right. Why do we not have the kinds of technology along the border to detect that kind of thing. It, the, the technology exists, and so we need not only just put the right technology in between our points of entry, but we need to have them at our points of entry. Uh, so that would be kind of step two, making sure we have the right hey, tool. Can I stop yeah. ask you a question? Because there's a lot of, a lot of folks said, we can build a wall, a yeah. wall of, with technology. Yeah. And can we do that? Mm -hmm. And if so, why haven't we? Uh, we, we have and we've started. Okay. Right? And, and, and this is probably a new phenomenon over probably the, the last year and a half of the Trump administration, and it's, and it's still going on under the current administration. And, and, and the, the reason, you do need a physical barrier in some places, um, usually where there's urban-urban contact. But there are some parts of the border, and I, I, I had 820 miles of yeah, it, yeah. more than anybody else. Right. There are some parts of the border where for Border Patrol to respond to a threat, their response time is measured in hours to days. Right. If your response time is measured in hours to days, a wall is actually not a physical barrier. Right. You need to be able to detect illegal activity, track that illegal activity, so that the you can- The point being, it's, it's gonna take them eight hours, a yeah. nice ladder and I'm done. Yeah, you're done, yeah. right? right. So, so, so yes, the technology can, can, can be improved um, in order for us to have operational control, meaning we know everything that comes back and forth across the border. So address the asylum issue, deal with, with the actual tools right. along the border. Right. And the third thing we need to do is streamline legal 
immigration. Um, the, the, the reality is I don't care what industry you're in. Yeah. You are dying for workers. True. It's in this day and age, we should be able to have a system that says, okay, this month, Florida needs X many um, hospitality workers. Texas needs Y um, amount of agriculture workers. We should be able to have a system that's based on need. Right. right? So streamline legal immigration. Right. And then we have to address the historical reasons that illegal immigration has come this way. And, and that's primarily in the Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. Now, today, because of the volume of illegal traffic, it's coming from all over the place. But historically, 80% has come from those three countries. So we need to be addressing the economic reasons in those places, lack of economic opportunity, um, uh, extreme poverty, and, and crime. Help those countries address those problems so that their citizens can stay there. Right? Those are the efforts that, that we can take. And guess what? Democratic pr primary voters and Republican primary voters, if you, just t if you go poll all of them yep. on this, 70% of them agree. I think I'm like the dreamers. This is an issue that 70% of Republican primary voters, to include Trump voters, believe these kids that have right. only known the United States of America as their home should have a legal pathway to stay here, right. right? The reason it doesn't get done is what you alluded to at the very beginning. Both sides would rather use this as a political bludgeon than solving this problem. However, um, those things that I've outlined can be passed. The rank and file in the House will be willing to vote some, on something like this, but it's the leadership of both parties that have prevented these things um, from, from coming forward. So let me, let me, I'm going to shift gears, but it's related. You spent how long as a CIA officer? A nine and a half years. Okay, I want to come back to sure, that. But sure. when you then came to D.C., and were there ever moments of this weird juxtaposition like I have been, and I know other people that have literally been putting their lives at risk for democracy, for this idea of America, and I get here, to Congress and people are treating it flippantly, or I don't, this might not be the right word, but no, I look. Uh, I, I think it's. I think it's the right word, and the answer is yes. Right, like it, they were. You know, people are advocating um, for the things that my friends and I were putting our, our life on the line right. in order to defend, and and so so was it frustrating? Absolutely, and a lot of people would always come to me and say, "Hey, Will," because because also on top of that. A lot of people like to, to you know, uh, the intelligence community sometimes is the, the dog people right. like to kick, right. right? Because the intelligence community doesn't fight back. They don't get on Twitter and, and refute things, right. or they don't go on um, CNN right. and, and, and rebut, right? Right, right? But what I would always tell folks that would say, what's going on? Here's what I know about the folks, the men and women in the intelligence community. They're professionals. Right. They're doing their job, regardless of the noise, that's on social media, that's in Washington, D.C. Um, they're going out and, and, doing, and doing their job. And so, so that's why I'm proud to have come from that community and try to, to reflect them in those things that I did when I was in Congress. Let's, let's stay there with CIA. What, what, what made you do that? Mm. And what, what, what are the things that someone like, whether it's me or the folks listening, what would surprise me about what your job looked like? The parts you can tell us. Sure. So, look, why did I do it? 
I was a computer science major. Okay. I'm walking across campus my freshman year in college. I had never really been outside of Texas. And I see a sign to take two journalism classes in Mexico City for okay. $425. Okay. I had 450 bucks in my bank account, so I go to Mexico. <laughs> Fell in love. What'd you do with the other 25 yeah, bucks? Yeah, look, like that, was, that was pocket change, right? <laughs> I was walking around money. And, and um, what was, uh, so I, it was cool being in places I'd never been in. You know, I'd read about in books. Right. At International Studies as a minor, first class I took, I had this CIA tough guy yeah. tell these amazing stories. And right. I was like, I want to do that. The idea of serving my country in exotic places yeah. was fascinating. Sure. You know, I did, I did two years in DC in training, two years in India, two years in Pakistan, uh, two years in New York City doing interagency work, and then a year and a half in Afghanistan. Okay. I never would have thought that I would have lived in India or Pakistan. Sure. And, and it, was, it was an exciting job. And, and what, what I would say is that if most people knew how small huh. our intelligence services were, huh. yeah. and, and that we do not have the luxury, the president, CIA director says, we need to figure this out. We can't say, ah, oh, boss, you know, we don't have enough people, we don't have enough money, we just don't have the time to do it. The answer is yes, we'll get after it. And so, so that commitment to um, the, the mission and the willingness to put your family, right, your, yourself ultimately in harm's way um, is, is what is the hallmark of those, of those folks that they knew they were doing it. But, but every night there are men and women that are doing things that could be a movie. And it was, like I said, it was the best, it was the best job because sure. you got to work on the most important national security issues um, of, the, of the day. And look, I've, I've traveled, it, it was funny, I, was, I recently was in Europe and I was in a country that I don't, I, the, it was the first time I had been there and the, the previous time I had been an alias, right? I had a number of alias um, uh, personas and I was like, what? Am I going to be okay? It was. It turned out okay. But to be able to yeah. even be in a situation to do those kinds of things on behalf of your country was was exciting. There's a. I encourage folks to read the book. There's a great story of you trying to bump a contact, which is to make a contact, hopefully to bring them onto our side, but at a ski uh, yeah. a ski slope, which is uh, you you end up with a. Uh, uh, a little bit of a yard sale in the snow, as they say. So, but uh, and, yeah. but you later do make the connection. So, yeah, and, and like you, you do it in, in fascinating places. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I was in I was in Pakistan when the um, the the Danish cartoons about the Prophet oh, yeah, Muhammad sure, yeah, came right, out. right, yeah, and and that created protests all over the world, and and tens of thousands of people were about to march on the embassy in right. our embassy in Islamabad. And I had to go into the crowd. Um, and so that one was a little bit more harrowing yeah. than, trying to, than trying to bump a target on a ski slope, yeah. right? But, but to be able to go from one to the other, it was just an exciting, it was an exciting career and it was an exciting time. I, I wanna circle back to you know, policy and politics in the country, but one question, as we record this, um, you know, the United States just re revealed they finally got Al Zarqawi. I'm not saying Al Zarqawi. Zawahiri. Zawahiri, excuse yeah. me. Thank you. Um, and it feels like we've always had a technology advantage mm -hmm. 
over the bad guys. Are we always going to have that technology advantage? No, what we're happens not. When we don't? We're not, and, and that's the scary part, right? Um, and and so and we can see that the the I've seen the last image we had of, of Bin Laden. Um, I believe it was in night. It was in two thousand and two. Um, we had the technical capability that got leaked. And guess what? That's when Bin Laden went, went underground right. and never used an electronic device again. Um, the fact that Zawahiri is in the capital of Afghanistan, um, in a in a a a a, a residence owned by the Minister of Interior, right? Yeah. Right. right? You know that's crazy. But but yes, it's, the capability exists. But the right now, the biggest concern is going to be between us and the Chinese government. The Chinese government. People still want to describe them as a near peer. Right. They are a peer. Right. There's no question. They are four times the size of the United States. So just with that alone means the United States has to be four times more effective than the Chinese government has to right. be. And, and so let's take a technology like quantum computing. You know, uh, quantum computing is, is still, um, we have not reached quantum supremacy where a quantum computer is going to be, be able to do something that a high-speed traditional computer is okay. able to do. But once somebody achieves quantum supremacy, it's probably going to happen in the next five to ten years. It's going to give that person the ability to decrypt every kind of communication that has ever been produced. So that's your bank information, that's how the SEC transmits information, right. all of those things. Right. So imagine the Chinese government gets that first. That first mover advantage is going to, sure. be, is going to be fantastic. And so, so that's from a nation state. But then what you're also seeing when it comes to things like cyber tools, these are being, they have been created by governments but now criminal organizations and enterprises are using it. You can buy the tools to conduct ransomware on the dark web. So it's, it's, this moves out of the capabilities of nation states to then you know, uh, um, any other kind of actor. So, so we're gonna start seeing an increase of those crime organizations using some of those tools. So it's scary. And then and the last one I'd say is artificial intelligence. The future, of cybersecurity conflict is going to be good AI, good artificial intelligence versus bad artificial intelligence. And the United States has benefited for being a leader in all of these technologies um, since World War, since, since the aftermath of World War II. If we do not maintain that level of, of, of leadership and dominance, um, we, will, we will get surpassed as a global superpower. So, so given that, let's just say you got to give a State of the Union speech mm -hmm. to Congress and you're, you're mm -hmm. you know, after 40 rounds of applause, you're standing there in front, uh, in front of mm -hmm. the you know, entire assembly. What's your message on that? What, what are you saying to, to make certain people here? Look, my, my message is going to be something around uh, the kind of message John F. Kennedy had about space, okay. right, and and the need to to achieve um, um, these things, and and I'd probably outline two things. I'd say the United States of America is going to achieve quantum supremacy in three years, okay. four years. Um, we're also going to defend against it. You and I are old enough to remember Y two K, right? Everybody was worried that when Y2K happened, our digital infrastructures would stop. It didn't. It was a big nothing. Yep. Why? Because it took 
four years and a trillion dollars to prepare for that. Right. That's the kind of level of investment and focus we need to do. When it comes to artificial intelligence, we're going to say the United States, the, uh, our, the government and the private sector is going to have unparalleled cooperation. We're going to get some great entrepreneurs and business leaders to come into the government at, at a senior level to help us drive some of yeah. these technologies. We're gonna share data, as much data as we can, protecting uh, the privacy of individuals to make sure those that are developing the algorithms that we need for these tools um, that is being, is being trained with as much data as we possibly yeah. can. Um, and we're gonna work with our allies because the only way that we're gonna make sure that um, uh, America stays a leader in advanced technology is if we're working with our allies, and, and primarily Europe. And we can't be fighting over things like privacy. So those are some of the things that I would, I would oh and by the way, every seventh and eighth grader in the United States of America is going to learn how to, how to code. Right. That is the basics of, of understanding all these future technologies, and the sooner we introduce that, the better. Right now, the number of high schools, I, I think the number is, it's low in the 30% of high schools that have a computer science class. The numbers for middle schools is even lower. And that has to change, because that is the building block uh, 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 um, learning that is necessary for us to stay competitive. Let's circle back to one of the things we're trying to work on here at the at this project at Vanderbilt. How do we get back to a? Fa I agree with you on the costs. Mm -hmm. You know the the way the primary system, the lack of competitive districts. The I, I hear people all the time say, "Oh, I'm, I see more and more people like her becoming independents. Is that a good thing?" And I say, "Well, actually, it's not um, because they're abandoning the primary process where the decisions are getting made." So, what? What's the, how do we get back to effective governing? Uh, so the professional political class tells candidates, talk to those likely primary voters. That feeds right. this momentum. No question. The, the individual individuals that have the, the willingness to talk to those folks that are being left out, it's hard. It takes more time. Right. It takes more money. That's actually the real opportunity. And so it's gonna require some, some politicians and people running for office that are willing to have those, those kinds of conversations. It's also gonna require people that are currently in office yeah. to, to, to practice what they preach. If you're gonna say we're, you're, you're representing everybody, do things that's reflective of, of everyone, not just focus on that 3% that we talked about, about right. earlier. And look, it comes down to leadership. We, we need people that are willing to inspire rather than fear monger. Fear mongering works, don't get me wrong, you see it happening every single day, um, but, we, we, but we need people that are willing to take those tough decisions. And, it, and look, here's what I've learned. The older you get, the more consequences there are to doing the right thing. But the longer you do the right thing, the easier it is mm -hmm. to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But you also gotta know what the right thing is to do. And, and so th th this seems philosophical, but that's ultimately 
what, what, we, what we need to do. There are many opportunities, even now, in one of the most hyper-partisan environments. Uh, the fact that Congress was able to pass a CHIPS Act, right, where um, making sure that you know, we're bringing semiconductor manufacturing sure. back to the United States. Um, the, the fact that during the pandemic, uh, we were able to pass bills to make sure the country was helpful to get through it. There are even now still some of those kinds of examples, um, even on something as tricky and tough as gun violence, uh, the fact that bipartisan bills uh, were passed in the environment that we're in. Um, I, so, so it can happen, but it needs to be consistent and it needs to be, uh, people need to build their organizations and their campaigns around solving, solving those problems. Makes sense. One of the things that has historically held us back as a country is race. Mm -hmm. And it feels to me you have a, a unique perspective, mm -hmm. like I said, with black father, white mother, Hispanic district, mm -hmm. If, if you got to stand up again and give an address on race, what, what, what would you say? Look, say um, slavery existed. It happened. Jim Crow happened, right? Policies that grew out of Jim Crow had impacts on communities, and those impacts are still being felt today. But the people, that, but many of the people that are, that, are, that are alive and working today are not the ones that necessarily contributed to that. We can recognize these things in the past and not be afraid to have to deal with it, right? And, and, and it, starts, it starts with that. I can honestly say, right, my father, you know, couldn't, when he, when he, he, he would tell the story when he first voted um, in East Texas, he would have to drop his, his ballot in a barrel. And at the end of the day, people burnt that barrel. That is not happening today. And, and so we can't be afraid to, to, to have these conversations or admit the past, the past problems. It's okay. It is, it, you're, you, when, when people admit that, it's not saying that you're participating in it. I think that's the, that's the first step. I think the next thing is, is we gotta focus on education. When, when you look at um, why do we have income inequality in many communities, uh, 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 communities of color, it's because you have education inequality and making sure that we focus on that. And, and in Texas, there's been a number of longitudinal studies about how giving school choice and letting parents decide where to take right. their kids has, has eliminated the achievement gap. And when you do that, then we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're, going, to, we're going to get beyond um, many of these problems. As we look to wrap up, my having been in the political world like you for a while, and when I talk to people, they tend to make one of have one of three reactions to the whole political. One is to assimilate, like, well, it's just the way the world is, so I'm going to go ahead and play <clears throat> play that game. Mm -hmm. The second is they just withdraw, mm -hmm. and they say a pox on both of their houses. I'm tired of the Republicans, Democrats. I'm just out of here. Uh, and the third, and the what I try to encourage is that they actually engage. How do you encourage people who just say, I'm over it? Well, mm -hmm. thanks. I loved when, you know, boy, I loved your service. Mm -hmm. You were great, but that's just not the way the world works. I'm, I'm out of here. Well, what do you say to them? Well, I'd start and tell them that, say, guess what? Democracy is fragile. Always has been fragile, always will be fragile. The reason America was called an experiment it's because nobody thought it was going to work. Right. There hadn't been democracy on the planet f for 1,800 years. Right. Last one was Rome. 
Julius Caesar screwed that up, right. right? When he became when he became emperor, there was not another democracy for 60 years, Switzerland, yeah. after we started, and there's only been 14 right. democracies that have that have existed for more than 100 years. Right. This is and 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 the novelty of this was that we said, hey, the people are sovereign, not the government. And the only way this thing exists and works is if people participate. And, and, and so with that individual who's, put, who's bringing up this issue, I would focus on the one thing that they probably care about and say, okay, if that is what you care about, here's how your government is going to impact you. And do you want to leave a country, a world worse off right. for your kids and the one you inherited? Right. And, and guess what? The level of work we have to do to keep this experiment operating for another 247 years is not as hard as what some of our, 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 our predecessors had to do. We're not having to storm the beach of, of beaches of Normandy. We're not having to fight at, at Lexington. We're not having to go um, and, and, and hand-to-hand combat in the fortresses of Mazari Sharif, right? And, and so for us, it's about participating in a process that many people um, have fought for us to have, and so do it. Two final questions that we try to ask our guests here. What gives you hope? Mm-hmm. Well, in the, in, when you look at uh, American democracy, and we can talk about, you wrote a great book sure. talking a lot of the issues. Give us something that gives you hope. Uh, there's two things. I. This narrative that exists about like college students and you know they're soft and you know mm. they're, they're afraid to have yeah. you know debate. I don't. I, I that hasn't been my experience, and so I am always fascinated by young people that man. They're so much smarter than we were when right. we were at that age. That are excited about solving solving problems. That. That makes me that makes me feel good. I also now like I thought I understood technology when I was in Congress. Yeah. I see these people that are on the cutting edge, yeah. doing things that sound like science fiction, that is gonna have such a tectonic improvement of society. Yeah. I see that stuff every day and I and I feel good. So so look, things might get worse before they get better, but I do believe that our best days are, are still ahead of us. What one of the things we talk about here again is we're we're looking for unity, not unanimity. Where mm-hmm. unanimity was never the the goal mm-hmm. of America, or a realistic goal. What is there some something that you can say is inspiring unity across the country today? Mm, it's inspiring unity a, a, across the, the country today. Look, I I I actually think this. I, I, I don't want to just I just I don't want to just talk about this the need of of technology and focusing on technology yeah. but the fact that Republicans and Democrats were able to do something that 20 years ago the population um, probably would not have been supportive of right. um, in order to in order to move the country forward that's a big deal uh, that's a really big deal, and it's a specific example of how we can how we can solve um, um, tough problems. Well, thank you. Um, I, I think one of the things that causes unity is people look around and they see selfless service in mm-hmm. a world that sometimes feels overly selfish, in a world that feels kind of all about I, me, me, and you have a life that's obviously shown that you 
put your own life personally at risk with the CIA, and then you went and political process, which I always tell people, it, it being having your name be on the ballot is a lot harder than, than you think. So your willingness to do that is significant. You're, you're too kind. And Bill, I'm gonna I'm gonna re revise and extend my remarks on okay. the previous question. The thing that I think there is there is unity on. Okay. The support in the United States of America towards Ukraine. That has, I've been floored by that. Because prior to the second invasion of Ukraine, the population was not supportive. Right. And did not want to, right. they said, hey, that's somewhere very far away. The fact that when we started seeing images of a, a bully, trying to to extend right. their own you know a will on a population that Americans stood up that people are still you know waving and, and, and flying Ukrainian flags and this is Republicans and yeah of course not everybody's in agreement but the fact that the supermajority of the country has to help somebody 7,000 miles away um, that was that was that has been a, a, a pretty fascinating and uplifting um, um, ex experience over these last few months. I agree. I was just in Eastern Europe in a country that's several hundred miles away, but much closer where mm -hmm. the, the, the reality of it feels, mm -hmm. feels uh, much, much more present. A and the sense and fear there reminded me how important it is to live in a place that's free. These were people who had a memory of not being free. Absolutely. And they saw that and felt that. So all the more reason I appreciate mm -hmm. folks like you who have served the way you have. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. It's been fun. I encourage people to read American Reboot. Uh, I think you'll be encouraged not just by the tone of the book, but that there's some specific policy mm -hmm. ideas in a world that seems a little policy light these days. Well done. Thank you.